Welcome to Torah Mecha, Nachyomi with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Liat Meyerfeld, and today we will be studying the Book of Yoel, Chapter 3. Great things often come in small packages. In just five verses, Chapter 3 gives an incredible description of the end of times, where God will literally pour His Spirit on the people. Verse 1, After that, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The Messianic era where Mitzudat David says people will receive a spirit of wisdom and have a knowledge of God. Eshpoch, I will pour my spirit as water is poured and flows and spreads out to cover everything. Rashi explains basal flesh as a description of those that prepare themselves for this auspicious day by softening their hearts. To have a soft human flesh heart and not a heart of stone. To be open and willing to hear God's word. Let's examine the Malbim, who clarifies the extent of God's promise. The Malbim explains that the Spirit of God includes all the soul virtues as described by the prophet Yeshayahu. Firstly, clarity of mind, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, Second, a clarity of body, having the spirit of counsel and valor, And thirdly, clarity of the soul, a spirit of understanding and the fear of God. So the Spirit of God includes clarity of mind, clarity of body, and clarity of soul. God's Spirit will be utterly palpable to everyone in the world. Verse 1 continues and goes to clarify that there will be levels of understanding. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, Your elderly shall dream dreams, And your young people shall have great visions, the highest level of complete prophecy will be achieved by their sons and daughters as they will be born ready in the days of Mashiach to only know the Spirit of God. They will all be Nevi'im. The elderly, who lived for many years during the dark time before Mashiach, only have dreams, chalomot, the lowest level of prophecy that is often mixed with untruths. And the third middle level of prophecy is visions, chazionot, achieved by the young people who did live before Mashiach, but not for as long as the elders, so their prophecy is not as tainted. In verse 2, we learn that even maidservants and slaves will experience an outpouring of God's Spirit. The Malbim clarifies that this is not prophecy, but it's a high level of mental and spiritual powers. They will have resourcefulness and courage and fear of God. But why shouldn't slaves experience God the same as free people? Why mention them specifically? Mitzudat David explains that this Pasuk is talking about people who were enslaved to physical pleasures, as described in chapter 1. They will be able to break free from those desires and experience God. Yoel in this third chapter shares a tremendous idea. The fact that everyone can, everyone should, be a prophet. There's no Navi club or rabbi club. There's no special code of Jewish law for holy people. Not only those that went to specific seminaries and yeshivot. Not a small limited club. Everyone can be a Navi. Everyone is holy. The Torah itself gifts this, the Jewish people this potential. In the book of Shemot, as they leave Egypt to become a nation, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Goy Kadosh. And here, Yoel envisions the building of an incorruptible society, a mass experience of holiness and decency. The strongest and the weakest, the oldest and the youngest, are equal in their vision of society, their vision of the world. This is utopia, and this is what God promises us. And God doesn't want to restrict it just to the Jews. 
Radak teaches that there will be potential for everyone in the world to have a clear understanding of God. Ruach de'av haskel, spirit, knowledge, and understanding of God. This prophecy about the messianic utopian era describes a great time with God's promise of pouring his spirit out on all flesh. In contrast, verses 3 and 4 describe to us what will happen to those that don't recognize God. As opposed to the beautiful description of flowing spirituality, we have a description of war and destruction. A description of the war to end all wars, the war of Gog and Magog. I will send foreboding omens in the heavens and the earth, venatati muftim bashamayim uva'aretz, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, dam va'esh v'timrot ashan. These same words that describe the destruction of ancient Egypt during the Ten Plagues, and so similar to the words that we learned recently, words used by Yechezkel in chapter 38, fire, blood, sulfur, and hailstones, to describe this final destruction of those that don't recognize God. Blood pouring down the streets, fire and brimstone raining down from heaven, and pillars of smoke rising straight up, shaped like tamar, palm trees. Verse 4 continues the description of the destruction and how it's perceived. The sun will turn to darkness, and the moon will become blood. All this will happen before the redemption, before the great and awesome day of God. This is a poetic description, according to Mitzudat David, of how people will perceive the destruction. As in any time of suffering, all will appear dark, as if blackness had descended on the entire earth. The moon appears red as blood. It doesn't shine normally reflecting the sun, but rather reflecting the blood flowing on the earth. The Abarbanel in his explanation continues to see the prophecy as an allegory. The sun will turn to darkness. The sun refers to the nations of Esav, the Europeans today, who worship the sun. And the moon will become blood. The moon refers to the nations of Ishmael, the Arab nations, who follow the moon. The rising sun of Esav finally diminishes its power and becomes dark. And the moon of Ishmael is red as blood spilled during the battle. The war of Gog and Magog is the war between these two powers, and they both lose, because ultimately Hashem and a vision of goodness and holiness will prevail. The same phrase used by Malachi, the, the Navi, the day of revelation of the greatness of God to the world. The exposure is complete, and everyone will know. The chapter ends with verse 5, again describing the salvation of those that do choose God. On this day of judgment, whoever calls on the name of God will escape. Anyone who connects with God, if you call his name, you will be saved from that horrible battle of judgment. The Midrash reads the word slightly differently. Whoever is called by the name of God will be saved. The Midrash describes people trying to save themselves from their enemies by naming their illustrious family or any leader or ruler who they might be connected to. Imagine they're stopped as they're walking the streets. Who goes there? They are asked. Do you know who I am? They would say. I am so-and-so, son of so-and-so, connected to the great family. And the soldiers would recognize and save them. If this is true, says the Midrash, all the more so if someone says, I am a Jew. I am called by God's name, Yehudi. They will be saved. Who goes there? We are constantly asked to get to know ourselves. If we can stand tall and say, I am a Jew, I am defined as a Jew, my whole being, kol atzmotai tomarna, is connected to God. I am called by God's name and I am saved. We need to be connected and stay connected. 
Rav Dessler, in Strive for Truth, reads the Pasuk similarly to the Midrash and teaches that this is a concept that has direct practical ramifications to our lives. Kol yimalet. Whoever will be called with the name of God will escape. Rav Dessler asks, how can I be called God's name? And he explains that the Midrash's answer is to be described as God is described. Just as God is called Rachum, merciful, and Chanun, gracious, and Sadiq, righteous, and Chassid, kind, so we should strive to be called merciful, gracious, righteous, and kind. And as much as we emulate God, we are called God's name, and we have fulfilled the purpose of creation. Verse 5 continues, Salvation on Mount Zion, and they will be able to escape to Yerushalayim. The Panavrit Sharav, Rav Kahanaman, came to the land of Israel in 1941. He had escaped Europe immediately before the German invasion. He was a member of the Lithuanian parliament, so he got a diplomatic passport and was actually traveling abroad with his son Rav Avram before the war started. His wife and three other children were meant to fly out the next week, and they never made it. When the Rav came to the land of Israel, Rommel and his German-African corp were 90 miles from Israel. Germans bombed Tel Aviv regularly. The British were burning all their official papers in the streets, preparing to evacuate. And at that time, he decided to buy a hilltop in Bnei Brak. He got it at a very good price. No one wanted it, but the Panovich Rav laid his foundation for a yeshiva. They asked him, who are you building this for? The Germans are here. The end is coming. The Panovich Rav answered, firstly, that the Jewish people need a yeshiva, even if just for a few days. And secondly, Behal Tzion Tiepleta. Tzion will survive, and this is on the plaque in the entrance hall to the Ponovich Yeshiva. He taught everyone to have long-term vision. When we look at the big picture in the long term, we know that Jerusalem will not fall, and this is based on our belief of the words of the great prophet Yoel and almost identical prophecy by the prophet Ovadia. As God has promised us, so it shall be. Amongst the remnants to whom Hashem calls, there will only be remnants after a long, bitter exile. Relatively few remain. But those that called in the name of Hashem, Hashem will call their name. The long-term vision is bright. Thank you for studying together. Li'ilu'i nishmat, Riva Schwab, Rivka Bat, Alexander Sender.